Till we sing in thanks to Please be seated. I want to take just a moment or two to say how much I or express how much I appreciate this opportunity. This is the third time I've had the privilege of being here with this group, and I've enjoyed each time I've been here. You've always been a good audience. That's my way of saying, please do that again. You know, listen. Now I've enjoyed so much being here with you before. It's good to be back with Greg again, and a lot of old friends here. Several people here that I've known through the years, and good to be with you. It's good to make new acquaintances. Appreciate the good singing. I just really, I'm, the bad singers, you know, I'm below this probably, but I love singing. I love to hear Christians joining their voices in sincere praise of God for truly our God is worthy of our praise and adoration. And I'm glad that Janet can be with me tonight and, um, as we grow older and we have obligations toward sometimes our aged parents, my mother and sometimes her mother, she's not always able to go, but she's here tonight. Glad that she could be here. Thankful for the good hospitality I've enjoyed. And probably other things I could say, but I want to get right into the lesson tonight. And some of you may be aware of this. Tonight starts the World Series. I care about the World Series when the Braves make the World Series. You know, that's, uh, that's kind of how I am. I will, I will watch a little of it. I will get messages from my son down at Auburn, who's a big Red Sox fan, you know. And so I'll know what's going on because of him. But when I was growing up, I loved baseball. I loved to play baseball. And I would watch, and I'd watch Johnny Bench. Some of you old enough to remember Johnny Bench. And I wanted to catch like Johnny Bench. I wanted to come out and be able to throw like him. And I would, the Yankees were always really good. And so you didn't have a lot of TV, a lot of games on TV, but you saw a lot of the Yankees. And I'd see Mickey Mantle. And I wanted to be a switch hitter like Mickey Mantle. When we played the plastic ball in the yard, I batted left-handed, right-handed like Mickey Mantle. Coaches never would let me do that in a game. They said, you stay on the right side of the plate, son, you know. But I tried to watch these guys and be like them. Well, I never did turn into Johnny Bench. I certainly didn't turn into Mickey Mantle or Henry Aaron. But if you want to be good in sports, you know, you learn from people. And that, that's, that's so true. But as I grew older, I realized... You know, first, I wasn't going to be like them, but that really didn't matter. It didn't matter that I was not Johnny Bench, that I wasn't Mickey Mantle. There was one I needed to be like, that, no, I would never achieve the perfection, but he's given me a model to follow. In 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 21, when Peter is speaking to servants who are in a bad situation. He tells them, you've got to learn to endure this. And he says, for to this you Christ also suffered, leaving us an example that you should follow 
His steps. How do you handle all this? He said, let's follow Jesus. Flipping over a few pages to 1 John, the second chapter. John is dealing to some degree with people who would say, well, I've got this relationship with God. And he said, do you really know God? If you know God, he'd say you keep His commandments. Verse 6, he would say it this way, He who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. What's the mark of a Christian? Well, he walks like Jesus walked. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Colossians. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this evening. In Colossians 3, verse 9 says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. He said, You are renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. And I've read arguments, discussions about, when he says the Creator here, are we talking about God the Father? Or are we talking about God the Son? Because, you know, there are times both are referred to as Creator. And I really think the answer to that probably is yes. You know, I, how, how am I going to distinguish between taking on the characteristics of God the Father and God the Son? What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to show us qualities of God. Now, one time in a gospel meeting, I did this sermon preceded by a sermon called, You Cannot Be Like God. I did, You Can't Be Like God, followed by, basically, You've Got to Be Like God. There are things of God, I can't work miracles. I mean, that's just something I can't do. There are some things of God I'm not supposed to imitate. God makes laws. God's the lawmaker. I'm not supposed to be the lawmaker. You know, and, you know, we may think of some other things that would be... I know a lot of people that play God when it comes to telling what folks are thinking in their hearts. I don't know what's in somebody's mind. I don't know what motivates them always. And yet, over and over again, the Bible says, you be like God. You take on the characteristics of Christ. And I want us to do something a little different. I'm not going to jump right into the characteristics. I want to try to see the picture of where this fits in the Colossians. There was a time I was more inclined to, maybe I heard Bill Hall say it one time, that he heard a preacher say this. He said, when I'm teaching Ephesians, I try to get through those first three chapters as quickly as I can so I can really get to the good stuff. You know, you know, and Bill, you know, just shook all over like, really? Well, when you think about Colossians, there's a background. False teachings arisen in this church. Exact nature of this false teaching, I'm not certain of it. You read in the second chapter, as he talks about the Sabbath and some things, it's pretty clear there was an element of Judaism involved. But as I read it, it doesn't seem to me as if like it's exactly the same thing as we're dealing with in Ephesians. Or we're dealing with in Romans. Some think there was some elements of Gnosticism. You know, that may well be the case. 
I don't know what the problem was. I just know what the answer was. He said, the answer is Jesus. He said, you are being led away from the one who is your hope. It's all about Christ. Chapter 1, verse 14. In whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Don't listen to these folks. Jesus is your key. In Christ, verse 20, you're reconciled unto God. Peace made through the blood of His cross. It is, verse 21, we are reconciled in the body of His flesh through death. It's all about Christ. Verse 27, Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. In the second chapter, he says, don't be led away from Christ. Verse 6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You keep going back to Christ. To Him, His life, His death, His teaching, His authority. Don't let anybody lead you away from Christ. Look at the second chapter, verse 11. In Him. He just keeps saying this. In Christ. You are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. He takes them back in time to their baptism. He said, when you were baptized, what happened? You were buried with Christ. You were brought up with Him, made alive in Him. Christ. That's who you hold to. And so when we come to chapter 3, He's going to tell us, you've got to set your mind on things above. Because when we talk about Christ, we're not talking about some sort of nebulous, touchy feeling, I love Jesus. most. We are talking, chapter 1, verse 23, about continuing in the faith being grounded and being steadfast, not being moved away from the hope of the gospel. Look at again at verse 27, that last part, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Don't move away from Christ and get your mind above. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, 
then you also will appear with Him in glory. I think it is vital. It is absolutely essential that we see the teachings of chapters 3 and 4. And that this is where you get into the teachings of this is what you must do, this is what you are not to do. We have to see these in connection with chapters 1 and 2. We have to see these in connection with Christ, who's our redemption, reconciled in the body of His flesh through death, buried with Him, raised with Him. He is our hope of glory. We sometimes, I can, I know I do, and I've preached a lot of lessons in which I got in on the small things, I'm not small things, the details, without first getting the big picture. I think sometimes I'm trying to get people to be like Christ without ever having come to really understand what Christ has done for them. What Christ does for us. And tonight, I'm not going, you know, I'm about to move into the specifics. And we have not spent the time we need, probably, with chapters 1 and 2. But I hope this is enough to understand. When we start talking about being like Christ, it's not that, well, Jesus just gave me a book over here and said, now I want you to do these things. I'm talking about the one who should be my life. My life. That's his word here. He says, who is your life. I ought to be caught up in being like Jesus. It's just like when I was a little child and I wanted to be like Johnny Bench because baseball was, that's just what I loved. I see Jesus. If I see Him the way I ought to see Him, I see the Savior. I see the Redeemer. I see the hope of glory. And so therefore, I want to be like Him. I understand that if I'm going to be like Him, it starts with some negative. I've got to get rid of some things. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. I, I just stand in amazement sometimes at people who will talk about being Christians. And then I figure out what they mean is they are Christians like some people are members of the Lions Club, members of the Ruritan, or they're, you know, there's this little section of their life in which they joined in with some organization. You know, and you know, when they go to work on Monday, the Lions Club has nothing to do with the work they're doing, the life they're living. You know, I'm a Christian. There's just some little compartment of their life in which they they say they fit Christianity in. But their morality, or maybe I should say their immorality, is completely contrary. I mean, there are people who think you can do anything you want sexually. 
You can live the unclean life. And it's okay. That's not compatible with being a Christian. He said when you do these things, the wrath of God will come upon you. Our God regulates sexual behavior. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, Hebrews 13.4. We have to understand life that has to be changed. You know, you look at verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Those have, that have no part of my life. You know, I can't be losing my temper. Talking filthy. And say, well, I'm a Christian. You know, no, those, those things aren't compatible. Put away the old man. And then he says, and now, here's the positive. Now, I'm going to start with the negative because it's part of the sentence. But look at verse 9 again. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Hopefully we've accomplished that. We're committed to that. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. What's the new man like? Well, the first thing I would say is taking the opposite of the negative of verse 9. Do not lie to one another. If I'm like God, I'm telling the truth. I mean, that's, that's a characteristic of God. You think about how he would say in Titus 1-2 that God cannot lie. Hebrews 6, it's impossible for God to lie. Jesus would be described as the way, the truth, and the life. I heard it said one time, even a good man will lie in a pinch. You know, that, you know, when, when the situation's a little tight and a little rough and the pressure's on, that honesty will go away. Well, if that's the case, if we will lie when we think it's necessary, then we're not making the progress toward being like God that we need to make. We need to tell the truth. Lying is part of the old man. Honesty is part of the Christ-like man. The one that reflects the image of his Father. You know, Jesus said to the Jews, John 8, about verse 44, that He said, you're your father of the devil. He was the father of lies. Who's my father? You know, my my. My life ought to reflect. You know, we look at children and say, oh, he's a spitting image of his father. Well, if I'm not honest, then perhaps it reflects my parentage. Let me say something about honesty that is more of a challenge for me than not telling lies. And that's sometimes not carrying through with things I say. You know, that I don't say it intending to lie. But do you ever have... I mean, and we all understand there are circumstances of life. Unlike God, I can't control 
all of circumstances. But sometimes we may say things. And the only reason it doesn't happen is not because of circumstances beyond our control, but a lack of commitment to our promises. God, how many times do we read that God's faithful, keeps His promises? That's something we need to maybe work on in our lives. How about verse 11? It speaks of being renewed according to the image of Him who created Him. And He says, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. God just shows no partiality. Isn't that what Acts 10, 34, 35 said? That when Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he said in verse 28 that God had shown him he was not to call any man common or unclean. Verse 34, he perceived that God's no respecter of persons or there's no partiality with God. And think about Jesus in his life. I think there are at least three times in the book of Luke it talks about him going and eating with a Pharisee. But then he would go and eat with the tax collectors and the sinners. You know, I, I, I mentioned both of those. You know, he went and sat down with the self-righteous. He wasn't so turned off by them that he couldn't go to try to help them. But he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He sat there at Jacob's well and he talked with a Samaritan woman. When he wanted to tell a story about how you really love your neighbor, who does he choose to illustrate that? A Samaritan that they would despise. When he gives his great commission, he said, you go make disciples of all the nations. You preach to every creature. It strikes me sometimes that racial prejudice is a sin that some still find excusable. That they, you know, nobody ever says about a person who, twenty years after becoming a Christian, still has a bad habit of cursing and say, "Well, you ought to know the environment in which you grew up." But people can be guilty of racial prejudice and say, well, you know, you've got to understand, he grew up in the South and he grew... You know, we put away the old man. If we're going to be like God, there's not going to be this Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. We're going to be like our Savior. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 12. Therefore... Therefore means, look back what I've just said. You are to be renewed according to the image of Him who created Him. So therefore, what should you be? As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of of perfection. Look at verse 12. Tender mercies. Some have compassionate hearts. One of the translations I looked at. Isn't that Jesus? Jesus, just a couple of passages or so with you. Matthew, the ninth chapter. Verse 36. 
says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. He was moved. He felt for them. In Luke, the seventh chapter, you have this story, and, and I just find it really a certain intrigue about it. Jesus is traveling, and there's this, this huge crowd following him. And he's coming up to a city called Nain. And as he's coming toward the city with a crowd, a crowd is coming out of the city because a widow's only son has died. And they're taking him out to bury him. And what does it say, verse 13? When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. The Hebrew writer would later say, verse 15 of the fourth chapter, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I don't remember how old I was, you know, what grade I was in school when they told us to quit using double negatives. And then you, you grow a little older and you realize that sometimes the double negative can be so effective. You know, you know, an English teacher would say, now that just simply ought to say he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That might be better English, but that's less effective. He's striving. He wants us to understand. Jesus is not sitting there unmoved. He can be. He feels. So what about us? Do I get so caught up in my own life, sometimes so self-absorbed in my life? Or maybe even, maybe I expand it out a little bit to include my immediate family. My, maybe my closest friends. But I don't feel for people what Jesus felt. I'm not moved with that compassion that He had. Or maybe, sometimes you ever been guilty of this? You can see on the news pictures of a tsunami on the other side of the world and see all this death and devastation or you see, you know, some of the war-torn parts of this world are famine-stricken places, and you see little... And your heart just breaks for them. People you'll never have any contact with. I mean, give a little money to the Red Cross or something, but basically, those folks are far removed from you. But, I mean, your heart just breaks for them. It's your neighbor across the street that you really could do something for you're not as quite as concerned. I need to be careful of this. I need to guard against this. But I take you back to Matthew 9:36. Why does it say Jesus was moved with compassion? He said they were like sheep having no shepherd. And he said, pray that the Lord of harvest would send out reapers. And you know what he does almost immediately? Our chapter divisions can be unfortunate sometimes. He said to the twelve, y'all go teach. Jesus saw these people with no shepherd, no guidance, no spiritual direction. He said, pray. And then He sent the apostles out on the limited commission to teach. The thing that ought to move me the most is seeing the spiritual plight of those around me. It ought to touch me. 
When Jesus was moved with compassion for Israel, He sent the apostles out. When He was moved with compassion for that widow of name, He raised her son. If I have that heart of compassion like Jesus, it'll be seen. It'll be seen in the way I serve others, the way I give to others, the way I talk to others about Jesus. I think we would all say we have that heart. Is it manifested? How about he mentions there, going back to Colossians 3, verse 12, after tender mercies, he says kindness. Think about Jesus. And I, I think about the time when he's, the people are bringing the little children to him and the apostles are like, no, you know, you just see them. He's too busy. You can't bother Jesus right now. He said, permit the little children to come to me. Jesus had time for people. Healing the sick. You know, talking to people. I just think this world could just use a lot more niceness, kindness, being good to folks. You know, we just need to be nice and you know, sometimes being nice means opening up your wallet and giving something to somebody. Sometimes maybe it means you help somebody that they need their grass mowed. Maybe some young couple that they can't afford to go out because they can't afford a babysitter. And you offer to watch their children. You know, there are just so many things we could do. You know, some of the nicest things have ever been done for me. Somebody bringing me some fresh vegetables out of the garden. Little acts of kindness, a handwritten note. Hey, sometimes I'll take a text message when I'm really low. But there's something special about a handwritten note, you know. You get that little note in the mail. Acts of kindness. Our God is kind to us. He also says, continuing on, humility. What's humility? Sometimes humility is best recognized by looking at the opposite. Well, arrogance and pride look like. Humility is that willingness to lower oneself, to not think too highly of oneself. I'm going to back up just a page or two in my Bible to Philippians, the second chapter, where there's an admonition not to be arrogant, to be humble. Verse 3, beginning... Nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. It's just hard to wrap the brain around the idea of the Creator. One who existed from eternity, who was almighty, coming and being born as a helpless baby, born into the most humble of circumstances. We know the story of his birth and laid in the manger. Growing up in the little backwater of Nazareth, 
working manual labor as a carpenter. We know the story of John the 13th chapter of how that Jesus with those apostles who over and over and over again would argue about who is the greatest. You put me right here in this position of power. And He takes and He washes their feet. He takes the role of a servant. I mean, that's the name that's used of Him prophetically in Isaiah, the servant. Am I like Jesus? Am I Christ-like? Or do I think I'm better than other folks? I'm too talented to be forced to do that kind of thing. If we're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of our Creator, we've got a towel wrapped around our waist. We're washing people's feet. We're doing for others. Our, we're not sitting around waiting to be waited on. We're looking for opportunities to serve, to do for others. That's the challenge. I also see in this verse he mentions meekness. You put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. Some of your translations say gentleness. That's what Jesus said of himself. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew 11. He told his disciples that the meek would inherit the earth. I really like the picture that's found in Matthew the 12th chapter. It's a quote from Isaiah the 42nd chapter. But he talks about the servant. In verse 19, it said, He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. A bruised reed he will not break. No reed would not be worth a whole lot. But Jesus could take care of a bruised reed. Smoking flax. You can just can you picture that flax wick in the oil lamp and, and it's going out and it's smoking and and somebody gently fanning it back to life? That's Jesus. Oh now, Jesus could be strong. Jesus knew how to overturn tables when he needed to. He knew how to come down with the hardest of rebukes when it was necessary, but look at him with that woman by the well. When she walked up, did Jesus say, well, look at you, you whoremonger? No. He, before it was over, she was convicted of her unrighteousness. But it's just amazing the gentle way he got there. The way he dealt with Peter, the 21st chapter of John, is he would say, you know, Peter, do you love me more than these? And of course, you know, how many times does he ask that question? The same number of times that Peter had denied him. But why didn't Jesus just say, Peter, how many times did I try to tell you you know, you remember that time we were walking on the road and I said I was going to be 
put to death, and you said, oh no, Lord, that won't happen to you. You know, do you remember how I told you? Y'all watch and pray. He got him to where he wanted him to be. Sometimes, sometimes we're cowards, and we don't say what needs to be said. There are times I know in my life I, I, I let fear keep me from being the Jesus in the temple. That's so true. And I need to be one who will contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered. But also think there are times when I don't display the gentleness and the kindness I ought to, perhaps because I don't have the humility. When you put these things all go together, it's not like, you know, I can be this person, you know, I'll have this quality, you know, maybe not that up, no. They're all going to fit together. When I humble myself and I realize my role, that I can be that person and I can be long-suffering. That's what he also says to put on is you put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. God, God has the right to take vengeance and one day will. I don't have that right. But even the God of vengeance, is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9. I need to be more like that. I need to be more patient with people. And, and, and I know... I, listen, my wife is here tonight, so she can, she can give you the amen to this after we're finished. I'm not naturally the most person in the world. David Tomley was my roommate for a year at Florida College. Um, that's all he could stand. Uh, no, we, no, we both left after that year. We couldn't take it anymore. They can all th- that's just not my natural, and yet there are people that I can be really patient with. Because they're people I just really care about. And I can be, you know, when I have to be, I've got it within me. And I, we all do. You know, there are people whose nature is such, they are so patient and long-suffering that they need a fire lit under them so that they can be willing to say what needs to be said sometimes. There are others of us, this is where we, we've got to learn the long-suffering. But we've all got it within us. Because we all show it with certain people. Well, most of us do. We can do this. Continue on as we come near the end. Verse 13, he says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. When you think about Jesus, you think about what He's done for you. I hope... His forgiveness is right up there at the top. If I want to be like Him, I've got to be forgiven. But but you know what He did to me? Oh, wow. You know, what did I do to God? What did this world 
due to our Creator. And He gave His Son. Even as they're nailing Him to the cross, He could say, Father, forgive them. And I know sometimes people say, well, you know, I'd be willing to forgive this person, but this person doesn't want forgiveness. Well, that's, there are people like that. There are people who will not accept God's forgiveness. But I want to take you back 2,000 years ago. The world was not clamoring for forgiveness when Jesus came into this world. God took the initiative. I can at least do what I can toward them. And obviously, if I'm going to be like God, if I'm going to be like Jesus, I will love. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I like the English standard version has become quite popular. It says, of love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love. Who does God love? I say, He so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Are we ever like, Jesus would say, like the Gentiles who love those who love us? Are we like God? And we will love others, even when they don't deserve our love. If we are becoming more God-like, more Christ-like, oh, we still hate sin. But we love people. We care about people. There are times I know in my life, I, I've contented myself with, I don't hate anybody. You know, I, as long as I don't hate people. Hate, that's a terrible thing to hate people. And I, you know, I, I can go down the list, I, I can't think of anybody I don't hate, that I, that, that I do hate. Hmm. Well, that, no, that's a, that's an important word, right? No, I, there, honestly, there's nobody I hate. But if I start making a list of folks that maybe I don't love, love the way God wants me to love them. That doesn't mean approve of. When God sent His Son into the world because of His love for the world, it didn't mean He approved of everything. And God still, I mean, He speaks of how His wrath is going to come on the sons of disobedience. But I've got to move beyond saying, I don't hate anybody. And be able to say, I love everybody. And I'm going to let that show in my life. It certainly showed in God. There's more I could say, but I, I want to close by taking you back and reading through this one last time with you. Starting at verse 9, and we'll go through verse 14. And just put this picture together in your mind. And ask yourself, is this you? Is this me? Is this the way I'm living? Where are the areas I need to strengthen? What do I need to do better in? Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, 
Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That's our goal. That's our aim. Put it another way. Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. Make that your goal. Make that your aim. In just a second, we're going to stand and sing that song that's been selected. And ask, have you given yourself to Him? Colossians 2, we read earlier. That new life begins when you are buried with Christ in baptism. Buried with that One who died for you and raised up to a new life. The body of the sins of the flesh put away. And you have a new life in Him. And then He will be your life. He will be your hope of glory. You can put your mind on things above knowing that from Christ there is eternal life. If you're not right with Him, why not tonight change that? We'd be glad to help you. You come as we stand and sing together.